the demand to pollute the atmosphere rises, but the room in the atmosphere is getting less. Supply and demand would tell you, logically, the price of using the price of that demand, the cost to use that atmosphere should rise. And the theory of the case is that the more it rises, the more expensive polluting becomes, such that there's a point where pollution is very prohibitively costly as compared to an alternative. And we're lucky that renewable energy is becoming very cost competitive with fossil fuel energy. That being said, you can't probably eliminate fossil fuels completely for the moment. At least that means that the fossil fuel emissions that cannot be avoided are very much more carefully considered because instead of it costing me a dollar, it's going to cost me a hundred dollars a ton to pollute. So that's a big difference. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. I've got to say, I'm very excited about today's interview. We really get to dive into something that I'm passionate about, and that is ultimately really talking about how we can work to solve our climate crises, protect our most precious assets, as we get to know Paula DePerna, author of Pricing the Priceless. Paula DePerna is a pioneer. She's a leader and the forefront of finance and climate policy, from the Oval Office to Antarctica, coral reefs to carbon markets. She served as president of CCX International, the world's first expansive emissions trading system to address global warming. She was president of the Joyce Foundation and writer for Underwater Hero and one of my personal favorites, Jacques-Yves Cousteau. Currently, she is special advisor to CDP, the world's only integrated environmental disclosure system. She's a frequent media commenter and public speaker. Wow. Paula DePerna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And thank you for that very nice introduction. I hope I can live up to it, but thank you. I have to say, I'm a scuba diver and an ocean advocate. I have to start here. Tell me about what led to your collaboration with Jacques Cousteau and really what it was like, what you did with him. I really would love to learn more. Yeah, it's one of those things that when you're doing it, you don't take the time to reflect. But on reflection, I realized it was the greatest experience one could ever have, perhaps one of the 10 best jobs in the world anyone could have ever wanted or dreamed of. So, but it all came about by coincidence because at that time, I've always wanted to be a writer. Writing was the thing I always wanted to do. I did a little diversion to teaching and I still love teaching. But at one point I thought I would just be a full-time teacher. And I decided why not go back to this writing dream? And I started freelancing and writing articles about public education, which I was involved. And um, I thought, well, you know, probably if you want to keep freelancing, you should learn about a few more things, different topics. And at that time, I wasn't particularly interested in the environment directly. And I didn't know anything about the oceans per se. And I barely had watched a Cousteau film because I just wasn't kind of necessarily my thing, but I knew who he was. Anyway, I volunteered to work for the Cousteau Society because I was given a uh, Christmas present by a dear friend 
of a membership in the Cousteau Society. And then there was a little ad that said volunteer writers and editors wanted Cousteau Project, Global Almanac, etc. So I volunteered. And the next day they called back and said they had a job, a paying job, a salary job for one person. And they wanted to offer me that role. I took the job thinking I'd only be there for a year. And I did, I don't know how many articles and many articles for this project. And the book was published by Doubleday. It was called The Cousteau Almanac. And in the process of doing the book, I met Jacques Cousteau many times and he was a real character. I remember and back to Pricing the Prices, he would, the French never worked during lunch. Work-life balance is very clear. Two-hour lunches, you know, and that's the two-hour lunch in addition to transit time. We used to go to lunch with him and chit-chat, not really talk about the project. And certainly we never talked about the films when we were working on them at lunchtime. But anyway, one day he took this dollar bill out of his wallet. He said, when I was a boy, this used to represent a dollar's worth of sweat, of labor. And then he said, but today it represents a dollar's worth of oil. In his mind, the transition from hard blue collar work to oil being the underpinning of the economy. And I think if he were here today, he would say it's a dollar's worth of carbon or carbon pollution that is backing up the economy. But he's always coming up with some imaginative or creative approach to something. He was a total charming person, very unassuming, very down to earth, carried his own suitcase. I went with him many, many places and have two bags. One is briefcase, one is suitcase, hands full. People would come up on the street and say, oh, Captain Cousteau, I've always admired you. Can I shake your hand? And he would put the bags down, shake the hand, always almost unfailingly polite. He was in that sense a role model. We went all over the place. I was on the Calypso many times, spent a year in the Amazon, was with him in the White House when we were doing the Antarctic negotiation a couple of times, the Oval Office. We convinced George Bush to go to the Rio conference One simple way, Cousteau says to the president, Mr. President, if you don't go yourself, you won't know what's going on. He was very down to earth. He told Ronald Reagan one time, the U.S. government was pulling its money out from the, you're a diver, out from the U.N. Ocean Program, the environmental, very dedicated U.N. Oceans Fund. It was under a million dollars, the U.S. conversation. And he went to the White House and said to President Reagan, Mr. President, if you won't put the money, I will. And his reputation was such that people couldn't resist that. To summarize, it was an extraordinary experience and we accomplished a lot, not only the films, but but other things. And I guess I'll just leave it on this, which is very significant. We together, and I will take some credit for this because people like Cousteau, who are so famous and have such access, they're truly, when I was with him, there was no one who wouldn't take his call, who didn't take his call. He could get into any office and see anyone that he chose to see. But he had no patience for process. He would often suggest something at the highest level, and then we'd go out of the office, and he wasn't interested really in finding out if they followed up with his idea. He was interested, but he didn't really have the skill set to follow the minutia of it. I don't like minutia either, but I am an implementer as compared to Cousteau, who wasn't necessarily. He, was a, he invented things, but he wasn't that good at process. For example, Antarctica, the Antarctica Treaty was a very important agreement from the late 50s, where the countries that had put a uh, territorial claim in agreed not to push those claims until 
the world agreed how to divide up minerals and oil in Antarctica. That discussion just never happened. So for decades, there was no pressure. And then all of a sudden, one day, literally out of the blue, somebody somewhere revived that discussion, said probably should figure out how to divide up the spoils of Antarctica. And so this diplomatic process was going on quietly. It ended up in something called the Wellington Convention, which was on its way to being ratified and pretty much said, these are the rules. If you're going to go to Antarctica to explore more for oil and minerals, these are the rules you have to follow. Sounds good. Except Cousteau says to me, Paula, this cannot work. You can't clean up anything in Antarctica. We have to stop this Wellington Convention. Now that meant turning history back. All these countries had agreed to it, except the United States and a couple of others. France was still hemming and hawing. He said, we've got to figure out a way to, to, to stop this. We did stop it. And not only did we stop it, but we replaced it with something far more important called the Madrid Protocol, which actually declares Antarctica a, a land of science and peace and prohibits the exploitation of minerals and oil in on the landmass of Antarctica, at least for 50 years, and can only be reopened, that conversation can only be reopened if there's a unanimous consent to do it. It's essentially in perpetuity. So we replace this idea of go forward under rules with you don't go forward at all. That was a political victory of some importance. I mean, can you imagine? I just stop for a second and think about what our world would be like if that didn't actually happen. We probably wouldn't have an emperor penguin anymore. Probably not. I'm glad you see that because we're right in the middle of that 50-year period. And he would say things the way people can understand them, like Antarctica is our refrigerator. Why would we open our refrigerator so everything gets warm inside? Very basic, basic things. And not only would we probably not have an emperor penguin, we probably would have much worse melting. Absolutely. And you think of it not only as a refrigerator, but a massive reflector of that light too. Exactly. Was there would be oil or industrial disruption of the surface and the reflective power would be disrupted. I mean, Antarctica is huge, but still, it's a pretty good deal. It was accomplished because of his personality and the belief, the confidence people had in him. Well, this ties really nicely with an episode I just released the day that we're recording this, which is June 28th, 2023. I just had Maya Van Rossaman, who wrote the book called The Green Amendment. We got deep into a discussion about debt ceiling deal and some of the walk back were in it and environmental controls that got kind of lifted a really unfortunate way, but also just the need for us as a global society to price the priceless, to think about where we're headed and to ultimately take action through government, through treaties, through collaborative efforts on a, a global scale, because we have to acknowledge we're all part of this same global community. We have that cell wall, essentially, that is our atmosphere, is really the only thing protecting us. We have to be very, very careful about it. Now, as we dive into your book, Pricing the Priceless, I would love for you to first start with what motivated you to write it. And then I want to talk about your prose because I'm a fan of literature. You know, we can segue into that as well. That's great. What motivated me was Uber. I'm not trying to target Uber at all. It had something to do with Uber in the sense that the first time I experienced Uber, people were very excited. They said, 
and I think I describe it in the book, look, we're getting a car. It's called Uber. It's new. And look, here it is. It's coming. Look, oh, it's coming. It's right down the street. You know, it's coming. And here it is. You can see where it is. It's three minutes away. And I thought, well, so what? It's a taxi. And I just couldn't understand how this became so magical. It was a disruptor of a pre-existing, what is called a legacy business, but it didn't necessarily create anything new. It may have created a few jobs for drivers, but I couldn't understand. Then I read the headline that Uber was now had more capital uh, capitalization than GM. And no physical product, basically software. Exactly. It was that kind of idea that made me ask the question, well, how come capital markets put so much value into these kind of intangible companies that don't necessarily produce anything? And then when you get to the atmosphere, which is indispensable, there's no value. It's valued at zero. Uber in the billions, the atmosphere at zero. And it also goes back a little bit to Cousteau. So this sort of started to come together in my mind and also carbon markets. We were talking about pricing use of the atmosphere, which you just referenced. 60 miles is that shell between us and disaster. And that's a very scarce space. And it's free. Using it is free, more or less. And using it not for nice purposes, but for dumping ground. How did that make sense? How can it be absolutely free when it's so indispensable and using it for free to dump is dangerous, potentially lethal. So those were the framing things. And it goes a bit back to Cousteau, who you may remember when the Exxon Valdez ran aground. At that point, that was a global catastrophe. Other countries had experienced big oil spills, but it was the first really big one in the United States in a very pristine part of Alaska, Prince William Sound. It was a horrifying sight, so much destruction of wildlife and otters coated with oil and people cleaning the eyes of seabirds with toothbrushes. And Cousteau himself was not that upset in the sense of, oh my goodness, we better, we were making a film, but he didn't even want to go up there. He said, you make the film with Jean-Michel, his son, I don't have to go. And I said to him, well, how come you're not more upset about it? He said, well, look, it's very sad. He said, but the real crime, the real tragedy is taking the oil out of the ground at today's price and then wasting it. The vision, the, the sight of this oil just spilling out of the sea, waste, being wasted by a stupid navigational mistake, which I can describe, but one woman was advising the ship to turn a certain way and they ignored her, the third mate. And if they'd listened to her, it wouldn't have happened. But that being said, the water was being wasted on the surface and it was being used at a very low price relative to its ultimate value. And we now understand that better because we realize that we've been burning the soil at a low price, causing a tremendous danger, which is climate change. So those were the kind of inspirational triggers, if you will. And I want to walk back to an earlier thing you said about Jacques Cousteau, and that is this idea where he really knew how to see things and talk to leaders and appeal to their ego a little bit too. Like even just say, oh, well, if you don't go there, you won't know what's happening. Suddenly it's like now you listen a little bit more deeply. You think, okay, well, what would happen if I didn't appear? And in this case, he's choosing to focus on what's right in front of him, which his legacy really was to help people connect with the natural world in a way that would inspire them to want to protect it. And I feel like overall, we have a few 
really incredible leaders in that space. You know, people often think of David Attenborough because of all the work he's done narrating incredible documentaries over the many years of his career to help people understand how delicate our ecosystems are and how the balance of each one of these animals is directly related to the future health of our planet. I, I just wonder, as you talk about this whole concept of pricing the priceless, I feel like I know what your answer is going to be here. Do you think that this is something we can really do in the near future and a term that will make a difference? Can we price the atmosphere and the natural world? Definitely. I mean, I think if you take the carbon market as an example, you know, it's functioning and what it does, it prices the scarcity, the value of this increasing scarcity, the demand to pollute the atmosphere rises, but the room in the atmosphere is getting less. Supply and demand would tell you, logically, the price of using the price of that demand, the cost to use that atmosphere should rise. And the theory of the case is that the more it rises, the more expensive polluting becomes such that there's a point where pollution is very prohibitively costly as compared to an alternative. And we're lucky that renewable energy is becoming very cost competitive with fossil fuel energy. That being said, you can't probably eliminate fossil fuels completely for the moment. At least that means that the fossil fuel emissions that cannot be avoided are very much more carefully considered because instead of it costing me a dollar, it's going to cost me a hundred dollars a ton to pollute. So that's a big difference. We're already in that sense, pricing the pricelessness of the atmosphere. And you have some water markets and I'm not saying markets are the total solution. There needs to be some serious public policy to protect people of public interest, but you have market pricing on water and that's a good thing. Because again, we do waste water. Certainly in the United States, we do. The other things that are much more innovative, for example, coral reef insurance, which whoever heard of that, why would you insure the coral reef? But the question is, why do we insure hotels that are on the coast and beautiful homes that are on the coast? How can we value them in the billions of dollars? Again, where the coral reef, which is a physical barrier to storm surge, we don't value at all. In fact, up to this coral reef insurance, we just let the waves do what they were going to do, smash up the reef and leave the reef in smithereens and move on. As you know, coral reefs, you're a diver. I mean, what more beautiful part of the world could there be than the coral reef? And I'm not even a diver. I have only seen them in films. I snorkel. I'm partial to kelp forests, but that's the coral reefs are really incredible too. And I've been diving since late 90s. It's over 20 years now of time in the water. And what I will say is that in that time, I've seen a pretty dramatic change in tropical waters. And tropical waters or subtropical are, of course, more sensitive to the temperature changes because they can get to a threshold where, hey, it's just too warm for a lot of the species of coral that have been there to really survive and thrive. I'm diving and seeing like, gosh, I see nothing but dead coral in this entire area that I dove 10 years ago and was thriving. We're out of space now where we really, we've hit what is the tipping point for some of those systems. And to learn that great chunk of the Great Barrier Reef is in Australia is now no longer living is just such a travesty. It's a scale in which I never expected to see in my lifetime. 
the early science about climate change was pretty early. People were talking about the danger of carbon dioxide building up in the atmosphere in the 70s and earlier even in Sweden. It is not only a travesty, but it's a tragedy. And I think people haven't come up quickly enough to understand what's at stake. Back to your question, can we do it in time? We don't really have a choice. But what's interesting is, and these are systemic changes. This is a real flip that we're talking about. But it's not so impossible because back to the coral reef insurance, what does it do? The destruction you saw, the coral bleaching, that's pretty much out of our control. That's kind of due to the ocean temperature rising. I think the statistic is the ocean absorbs 90% of the heat that's generated. If there's a lot more heat being generated, a lot more going in the ocean. I don't know if coral bleaching can be reversed. What happened potentially is reseeding the reefs with coral that is grown in a laboratory that is more resistant to temperature, that's going on. But that's a very nascent science. But the coral reef insurance is even more concrete, literally. The principle of all these instruments that I talk about in the book is that there are environmental benefits. We're not necessarily putting a price on nature. We're putting a price on the benefits that nature brings, the economic benefits that nature provides, nature being an unpaid worker, basically the world's most exploited worker in history, never paid. It's exactly like that. It's an unpaid worker. We could price the work that nature does and the work that coral reefs do in blocking the coast and say the coast in a given society, a given area has property value of X, the coral reef must be worth at least a portion of that property value. Regular insurance policy, except it's a parametric, it's called parametric insurance. The difference between that and liability insurance is you, in a regular claim, if your house or your car, you have to show liability at some level and there's a claims process. Parametric insurance, there's no claims process. A particular event occurs that if people have agreed in the, at the outset, when that event occurs, the policy comes into force right away. Some innovative insurance companies have figured out how to insure coral reefs and bring the economic benefits, quantify the benefits and translate those benefits into a premium value for an insurance policy and sell that insurance policy to the enterprises that are in charge of protecting the reefs. Now, mostly those are governments. And this was tried in the Caribbean and TNC, Nature Conservancy, started it. Now this thing has been expanded. But the parametric insurance trigger is wind speed. It's pretty well known that when wind speed hits a certain level, likely the, the wave speed is going to be a certain level. And very likely the two combine and the reef is crushed at that wind speed. And the wind speed is a real predictor, very accurate predictor of destruction of the reef, the physical destruction. So I never knew this, but it makes sense because coral, hard coral, as you know, is pretty much limestone and cement. The coral reef insurance kicks in the minute that wind speed hits a certain level. That triggers these diving crews that have already been trained, that are already waiting for this, not waiting, but ready for something like this to happen. And they get sent right out to the reef almost immediately after the storm is finished, is subsided. They jump in the water, they have all these tools, and they literally put the reef back together again. They pick up pieces, tie them back. They drill holes and put the, a piece of reef back into where it was. And they've actually fixed the reef. And I didn't know this, but if you do that within a certain period of time, the reef can grow back on its own. 
So the insurance policy makes it possible to repair the reef. And that's because the the economic benefit of having a, a reef intact can be quantified and translated into these insurance policy terms. It's really about pricing the benefits of nature as much as anything else. And the more you understand the value of the work nature provides, the more you understand you need the work done and then you're willing to pay. And it isn't you and me necessarily that have to pay. It's the banks, it's the investor firms, it's the people who have all the money who should be moving their money from bad things to good things. That's the point of the book, really. I live here on the central coast of California. And this um, last winter, we had some some of the worst storms I've ever seen here. Some of the scariest, frankly. Winds that came through at such a force paralleled with an incredible amount of water And I heard a term I'd never heard before, which was a bomb cyclone. And literally all of this weather came into the Capitola town and that essentially buried the downtown under ocean for a bit. The waters eventually receded and took with them all of the beach, essentially. It really damaged many structures, of course. Ultimately is something that at this point we understand could become seasonal, which is also very scary. And there are even some recommendations from people from the government to people who have homes on the coast to surrender part of their property line and be prepared for it to become part of the beachfront as opposed to their property any longer, because there isn't natural barrier reef there. And to build one with very deep waters shortly off the coast is very challenging to do. We're in unprecedented times right now, and insurance policies may be one thing that can help us, but we obviously need more support for infrastructure that can support people as well. You talk about many things in pricing the priceless from things like carbon credits, which have sometimes been controversial, namely because we're putting a carbon allocation to something like the future health of a tree or the future oxygen that tree will produce and carbon it will sequester. Where are we presently? Can you just update the audience here on where are we with regard to carbon credits and do things like carbon credits provide a viable solution for the pollution that many companies create? This whole carbon market thing is complicated, but number one, a real distinction between carbon market and cap and trade. Cap and trade is really the tool that's the most important one. And cap and trade is, means the following. It means that everyone is there. The emissions you are allowed to emit by a public enterprise like a government are limited. And that permission that you have is increasingly reduced. Again, cap, reduce, meaning you will not be allowed to emit today as much as you were allowed to emit yesterday. So the pressure is on you to figure out ways of reducing. It's easy for everyone to say that a fossil fuel plant should close or a coal burning plant should close. Well, there's downsides to closing them. I mean, they should be closed at some point, but as we saw, puts people out of work. There's a a political backlash. There's many reasons why you just can't shut a power plant down. There's also many reasons why you can't just open one that's based on solar energy. These plants are built for 20 years. They're not built for one day. You have to assume that whatever changes, I'm just speaking now about the power sector, the power sector makes are not made overnight and can't be unmade overnight either. The power sector needs time. And 
the best intended company, the companies with the highest ratings, Google, which is 100% renewable for they claim for their data centers, they buy all their power from renewable energy, they're buying offsets. So Google buys offsets and everybody thinks it's okay. But if some, if a dirty company buys them, then maybe it's not so okay. So that's a dichotomy. But once a company, whether it's Google or any company is under a cap, the burden is to reduce directly, get those emissions not to be produced, no offsets. And once you've done all of that, then you are allowed a certain percentage of offsets to apply into your, against your cap. It's a bit like a diet. You say you're going to lose 20 pounds in a year, two pounds in a week or a month. And you think, okay, I'll do that by eliminating carbohydrates. Well, you eliminate all the carbohydrates and you still haven't lost the pounds. You look for something else. That's what an offset, it's literally an offset to what cannot be directly reduced. Now that's in a cap and trade and it's not willy nilly. There's a very limited percentage. Now, if we're only talking about the voluntary carbon market where there's no cap, I'm Paula DePerna. I emit 100 tons this year. I go to the market and I buy 100 tons of verified carbon sequestration credits from a bona fide credit source. The trees are still standing. They don't burn down. 100 up, 100 held down. So that particular time that I do it, I'm not contributing to the problem. That's all you can really say. I'm carbon neutral. But what about next year? The price of the tons goes up. And I don't want to spend that, so I don't do it. Or I decide, well, this year I'm only going to do 50 tons. Or you get a new job and you're flying all over the place or whatever. Yeah, there's variable input, so to speak. There's variables all the time. The variable market, the car- voluntary carbon market, the net zero pledges, that's where people have to look. Are companies really pledging something that's in their control within the next five years? Or are they pledging 2050, which is outside of anybody's responsibility today? It's complicated. The cap and trade in Europe is working now quite well in terms of reductions. You have one or two elsewhere. You have one in New Zealand. You have beginnings of one in Australia. You know, there are many, many different ones. There's two in the United States, including in California, one in the Northeast. They should knit together. That's one of my big policy suggestions that the California market and the Northeast market should knit together because then it'd be a cap over the whole country, which is good. And we'd have a national carbon price. But beyond carbon, there's beginning to be what are called nature-based solutions. And these are, they're kind of like offsets, but they don't necessarily apply to a carbon target. They are in themselves sought after. So cleaning up of wetlands or investing in a restoration, particularly of wetlands and a reforestation for its own sake, not necessarily against a carbon credit, a carbon target for having the biodiversity in the forest. I think it was last year, the UN met again on the Biodiversity Convention. There was an agreement to set aside 30% of the world's land, mass, biodiversity sources, and oceans, take it off limits, 30% off limits by 2030, 30 by 30. And that'll never happen without investment in nature-based solutions, where you actually invest in the preservation of 30% of our resources for its own sake. When we talk about that 30%, we're also talking about productive land and productive waters. We're not talking about the barren deserts and the vast blue open sea where there isn't much life. This is to protect life. And why would anyone do that is because there's going to be some level of financial return. And that 
doesn't mean by exploiting the resources. It means by the design of the vehicle, the product, the financial vehicle. You mentioned the coral reef insurance as one example of something that could be moving largely in our favor. But there's also this idea of the forest resilience bond. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that one's very cool. And that one has grown a lot since the original concept. And that was a California innovation. In a nutshell, you obviously, we all know about wildfires and they're getting worse. And they certainly got worse in California very fast. And now they're burning in, in Canada today, the day we're speaking. The smoke is back in Chicago and even where I am in upstate New York. How do you prevent wildfire? You, one, you don't throw matches. And human beings have a lot to do with wildfire because there is inattention and not paying attention to forest fires and campfires, but and there are sparks from utility poles and so on. But on balance, if the forest is wet, it's not necessarily going to burn. That's a resilient forest. How do you keep a forest resilient? It's not only that it remains wet, but it's also not burdened by a lot of excessive dry areas, too much grass on the floor, on the ocean forest floor, dead branches here or there, all of which is like kindling. And if there is a fire, it just makes it worse. How do you protect a forest from the future burning capacity, the dryness that might come? Or how do you reap today the benefits? How do you monetize the benefits of a resilient forest that we may not see for a couple of years, maybe a decade or more? The brilliance of the resilience bond is that they brought together all of the beneficiaries of a resilient forest who are very disparate. So The California Wildlife Service is a beneficiary because if the forest doesn't burn as much, they can save some of their budget for protecting the forest instead of what's happening now, which is spending it all on putting fires out. Another beneficiary at the other end of the spectrum is hydropower facilities, which surprised me. It didn't connect that if you have a hydropower plant, which we all want to function because they're low carbon, if not zero carbon, needs water. And the water going over the dam is from rain and reservoirs, but also from the water table. And trees put water into the water table. If the trees aren't standing, the water doesn't go into the water table, and you might not have as much power over the dam, literally. The hydropower company is a beneficiary. You can count up the value of the coral reef. You can anticipate and quantify the benefits to the hydropower plant, which won't have to buy power from other people if they can generate their own to the California Wildlife Service, to the local insurance company that would maybe pay less claims if there were less fires. They're the beneficiaries in the future, and they have agreed to pay back investors who securitize upfront, put the capital in upfront to the bond, taking the risk that the benefits will appear later. The people who benefit don't have the cash upfront. Private investors come in and put the cash upfront, And then the beneficiaries agree to pay the cash back as they receive the benefits for a premium. Forest Resilience Bond was designed with some input from foundations who put money in and they agreed to a concessionary return. The rest were commercial investors who expect a market return. And the whole thing has gone from a $4 million pilot to now, I think, two funds of $25 million each, an infrastructure portfolio. The brilliance of the Forest Resilience Bond is it it uh, translates forests and recategorizes them as infrastructure. Once something is, is characterized as in, or funded as if it was infrastructure, something's funded as infrastructure, it carries a requirement to be maintained. It's sort of a complicated story, but it's quite simple. It's like a bridge. You build one, you have to maintain it. And 
that's what the forest, the forest is standing, you got to maintain it because it's infrastructure. It's a brilliant concept and it's expanding now uh, quite a lot over the world. In a way, this is just another method of pricing that priceless item, the natural world. Now, I've also covered on this podcast uh, some research specific to the ecosystem wilting point, which is essentially the point at which a forest is beyond return, right? It just got too dry for too long. It can't necessarily recover in the same way that you might expect it to. Does something like the Forest Resilience Bond protect for that issue in its um, present state? Yeah, that's a good question. Honestly, I don't know enough about the biology involved or the forestry involved to know at what point you really cannot restore a forest. I'm sure there's some point in time when forests, all forests can be restored. Where the financing for that would come in, I don't know. Higher risk theory, you would stretch out the timeline and you'd have to find investors who are willing to hold on to the risk longer. But conceptually, it should be the same situation. It's just that we're trying to deal in a real world and back to you saw this reef destruction in your lifetime. We're no longer talking about our lifetime. We're talking about a decade. And all the science suggests that in climate change, we will never get close to gripping the problem if we don't start reversing it significantly, which means one thing, delinking economic growth from emissions growth. That's the number one thing that has to happen. Back to pricing the priceless, it's a way to continue some economic growth as well as reduce emissions growth because people do need to work. We can't just say, well, we're going to stop every kind of fossil fuel use regardless of how many people suffer. And certainly back to the book in that chapter on off limits, trying to address the demand that's now going to be placed or being placed on people who live in the Congo and in Africa, where which the Congo Basin is the last intact carbon sink that's actually still absorbing carbon. Amazon has turned into a net emitter, is no longer a net absorber. It's now beginning to emit because of deforestation. A lot of pressure on people in the Congo who are dirt poor, one of the most poor regions in the world. How can we in the North say to them, don't cut your trees, don't release the carbon from the peat, don't go after the oil because the world needs you not to? We have to pay them not to. I want to go to a discussion on some, your just your writing. I think often, you know, you see a book put out there by Wiley Press. They do a lot of business textbooks, a lot of boring books, let's be frank. Okay, but good. Great information, all that. This is not a boring book. And you tell in here stories about, for instance, what made you seek out the Pope to speak about carbon markets, advancing a conversation with him that was perhaps something he'd already kind of dismissed and dismissed for reason. But you tell that story in here. And I don't want to spend all of our time going into that. I just want to tell people there's some really cool stories in here, right? This is an example of your prose. And this is just from page 12. So early on in the book. And you say, indeed, pricing the priceless can be morally risky, for it can also demean our most revered and valuables, labeling them as mere commodities subject to fluctuation, speculation, gouging, or cheating. This sentence sent chills up my spine because I think it's also prescient for the issues that we could see as companies and markets start to respond to what had been externalities in the past and turn it into something capitalistic. I just want to state overall, I love your writing style. I think you're pointing to 
solutions, but also the challenges that we will face along the way. And I'm just a big fan of the park. I did want to ask you what it was like to go to the Vatican <laughs> and pursue those meetings of the Pope. I don't know that we have quite enough time to dive into that deeply, but can you give us the 30,000 foot view? I was raised a Catholic and I can't speak to the beliefs of people. As I think I say in the book, it was an occasion for which the word awesome really does apply. Let's have lunch tomorrow. Oh, awesome. No. Inner sanctum of the Vatican. That's awesome. Again, I don't want to address my own religious beliefs, which basically I don't have, but I was raised with them. And also the art, just the art alone, the whole scene of this rarity, and even knowing the controversies and some of the actions of priests and the things that we know, all the controversy and the looting that occurred. So some of this art could come back to the Vatican. In the presence of that kind of situation, you're going to see the Pope and you're walking up a staircase designed by Bernini. It is awesome. What I realized in that experience was, this is what I'm talking about. There are people who would live their entire life to meet the Pope. I met him twice. People could spend their whole life dreaming of meeting the Pope and they would meet him and it's over like that. And this is what nature is. You can spend your whole life thinking nothing's going to happen to it or that you have your whole life to protect it. You don't. It could go like that. Look at the fires in California. And that's what I got out of being there, that I had spent three years trying to get that meeting. I got it and it was over in minutes. I want to ask people to pick up this book, if for nothing else, but to read the letter that you wrote to the Pope to gain access. Because I have to say, one of the things I have learned over my career and just being a human being on this planet is that when you really work to understand the person on the receiving end, and when you are able to step into their shoes and their viewpoint and speak to them in a way that they can hear you, what you can accomplish is bigger than you might have dreamed. Yes, you envisioned that you'd be granted audience at some point, but that very letter I think should be a lesson to anybody who's in the world of business, sales, marketing, et cetera. I want to, again, I'll tell people, go pick up the book and read that. It's not like this is an exorbitantly expensive book. It's $29.95 in the US, $35.95 in Canada. It's available now. And if you've ever wanted to be persuasive, Paula, wow, that was something. Thank you for sharing it because honestly, it's a really incredible work, obviously, that you have put a lifetime's experience into the way that you've shared the stories that you experienced directly, indirectly, and the research that you've conducted to create this book makes it very accessible. Now, granted, I'm coming at this from a somewhat informed perspective. I spent a lot of time reading on sustainability, climate crises, things along these lines. I've interviewed some incredible people like yourself. I just felt like I could have come at this with a high school education and not a lot more. And gain a deep understanding of what we could do to make change happen fast. I really think this is an important work and I hope that everyone listening will pick it up. If you have any closing thoughts or if there's a question that I haven't asked that you think I should have or you'd like to answer, I want to leave you with the floor to do so. If not, then we can start to wrap. I guess the only thing I would say, first of all, thank you for noticing the writing because I do think it's a craft that I'm very proud of and I did work very hard on 
being accessible and but also bringing forward the beauty of the world. What I learned from Cousteau is people will protect what they love and not much more. We invariably we favored beauty over facts. Not that we didn't use facts, but the idea was this is what's at stake. These are the beautiful things. And anyone, regardless of their socioeconomic situation, can appreciate beauty. The best things in life really can be free, beauty being one of them to a large extent. And the future is very complex and there are no easy answers and there will be challenges, but ambiguity is nothing to be afraid of. And I think what we have to ask our leaders to do is help us moderate that ambiguity, give up, make it more comfortable for all of us to live in these complexities rather than choose one thing or another. There isn't really a clear answer anymore for climate change. It's very complicated, but it's doable if we work together as a team and set aside some of these rigidities with integrity. Integrity and beauty, those are the two things I guess I would leave as my last two words. Beauty and integrity. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Paula. I've so appreciated the conversation. I love the stories. Learning a little bit about Jacques Cousteau, I feel like I've touched moments greatness through you to someone I revered forever too. I appreciate you for that too. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the care. And I guess we should say there's a digital version also available for people who prefer to read on screen and it's cheaper, just a little plug. But thank you for your attention and your care and your hard work too. Oh, thank you, Paula. Now, just so people do know, if you are on a time crunch, you can also have your applications read you a digital copy <laughs> while you're on the go. I sometimes do that on my Kindle app and I'll just like, oh, I'm doing chores and the robot reads to me. So thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. What a treat that was getting to connect with Paula DePerna, understanding her perspective, having a taste of what it might've been like to spend all of that time with Jacques Cousteau to understand how he became such an incredible leader and how even just focusing a little bit on the audience themselves on getting to know the audience can ensure that you have greater impact. Her work with pricing the priceless is really something else. You can learn by reading her pages. You can learn by reading the letter that she wrote to the Pope, one that helped her gain audience with him, not just once, but twice. This is an incredible work. It's a lifelong dedication to help our planet succeed so that we can all live the best life possible. Now, to connect with Paula DePerna and her latest book, Pricing the Priceless, The Financial Transformation to Value the Planet, Solve the Climate Crisis, and Protect Our Most Precious Assets, you need only visit show notes. You can click on the link right away and get a copy of your book. But I encourage you to go to caremorebebetter.com because on my website, I have complete transcripts, links to relevant topics that we touched upon, backlinks to episodes that I referenced during this episode, and so much more. You can review blogs, you can search for topics that you're interested in exploring more, and you can even leave me a review directly on the site. But what I have to tell you about in the world of podcasting is simple. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave the podcast you love and review there. Give us five stars and a written review. It really helps the podcast reach more people and can even ensure that the podcast gets featured by Apple or other podcasting platforms. It's one of the ways our message can get to more people so more people can join the community so that they can care more and create that better world with us. For those of you that watch this on YouTube, thank you for joining me there as well. 
This YouTube episode is also published on caremorebebetter.com. You can go there. You can even click the microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner and leave me a message. Tell me what you thought of today's episode. If you have a question that you wanted me to explore more deeply with Paula, you could even share it and I could connect with her and then share it with you on the next episode I record. The reality is that this can be a two-way conversation. Yes, you've heard plenty from me, but I also want to hear from you. A simple comment on the YouTube page or a written review or even just an email note or voicemail on my website can mean so much. And ultimately, just keep the juices flowing, keep me wanting to do this thing. Because I got to tell you, while every episode brings me something, it's also a lot of work to put into the world. Thank you, listeners and watchers, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community. Because together, we can do so much more. We can even create a world that values our precious planet, that prices the priceless, that respects that the air we breathe is a gift, that respects that the trees and the forest provide us with that air, that they sequester carbon, that they ultimately create the future. We can live in that world together. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. Thank you.